0: All right. Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of In the Valley. Uh, As you know, the purpose of these sessions is to continue our priority of raising awareness of the diversity of our team and the value we collectively all bring to our mission. This is the fifth iteration of this series, and I'm excited to say that today's topic will focus on the experiences of USACE's Native American employees, the history of the relationship and engagement between USACE and the tribes in our region and the tribal partnership program in MVD. I also want to note that Native Americans are filling a number of key positions in our country right now. The Secretary of Interior, Deborah Holland, is an enrolled member of the Laguna Pueblo Tribe. The Assistant Secretary of the Army for Civil Works, Mr. Connor, is an enrolled member of the Taos Pueblo Tribe in New Mexico and Mr. Pinkham, the principal deputy to Mr. Connor, is a citizen of the Nez Pierce tribe. I think these appointments will go a long way to raising awareness and support for our fellow Americans and the challenges that they face. I wanna welcome the 300 plus folks so far that have logged in and the number is climbing. And I also wanna welcome, we have some folks from outside of the Mississippi Valley Division Uh, Not the least of which is 2 of our panelists, but we also have some guests from outside so welcome to this forum. In preparation for this episode, I've done some reading and research and it has really opened my eyes. For example, I was surprised to learn that Native Americans weren't granted citizenship until 1924 and that they didn't all have the right to vote until the early 1960s. I also learned that there are more than 500 federally recognized tribes and more than 300 reservations in the United States. And so with that, I'll draw your attention now to the slide on the screen. Uh, For those of you who are just dialed in and and on audio and you can't see the screen, uh, what's depicted there is uh, it highlights all of the tribal lands in the United States. I think most of us who aren't familiar Uh, With Native Americans and and where they live, Uh, there's a lot of tribal lands. In the United States and overlaid on that, then are the regions of USA. so you can see there in the center. The light green is the Mississippi Valley division and you can kind of see where the tribal lands are within our boundaries. They are mostly in the North. uh, In states like Wisconsin, North Dakota and Minnesota. So I'll begin with introductions. Today's panel members consist of three Native American employees. One is a member from the Leech Band of the Ojibwe of Minnesota. We have a descendant of the Lac du Flambeau Band of Lake Superior Chippewa on her father's side and of French and Cajun descent on her mother's side. And we have a member of the Iowa descendancy and enrolled member of the Sac and Fox Nation of Missouri in Kansas and Nebraska. So, before I introduce uh, until before I introduce them by name, I just want to send out a reminder to everybody on please mute your mics unless you are a panelist. And so, without further ado, I will introduce uh, our panelists and if the 3 of you could go ahead and turn on your video. If you haven't already Michelle Larson is a senior hydraulic engineer assigned to the St. Paul district within within the hydraulics and hydrology branch. Dr. Simone Whitecloud, a research ecologist, is assigned to the Cold Region's Research and Engineering Laboratory of ERDC, And Mr. Mark Gilfillan, a senior tribal liaison and program manager of the USACE Tribal Nation's Technical Center of Expertise in Grand Junction, Colorado. Sincere thank you to all three of you for, for volunteering for this panel. So, if we can close out that slide. And then I'll get us started with the questions so just I want to give everybody all 3 the opportunity to talk a little bit about themselves. I'd like to give each of you about 2 to 3 minutes to introduce yourself as Native American individuals to the degree that you're comfortable and also tell the audience a little bit about yourselves. Uh, Michelle, we will start with you.
1: Apa Jigu Nimewendum Nungum. Michelle Larson Indigenous cause. Nijo anakwad dukwe nindegu ojibwe mong. Gazagasqua chimeikog nindu jibba. Hello, I'm really happy to be here with you today and be a part of this. My name is Michelle Larson. My Ojibwe name is Two Cloud Woman. I'm an enrolled member of the Leech Life Band of Ojibwe. Um, so family is part of who I am. My mom grew up on the Rez and they would gather food by the season. When visiting, we would go and pick wild blueberries and hazelnuts. Family gatherings always included everyone and we ate berries, wild rice, walleye, potato salad, and my grandma's sourdough fry bread. My grandma and one of my aunts had beadwork in the Smithsonian Museum. Grandma loved watching the dancers and the beadwork go by at powwows. I was lucky enough to know my great-grandma, Emma Bear, growing up, although she barely spoke any English. Um, Emma passed away at the age of 103 in 2001, and she was well-known as the last known survivor of the last Indian War in the U.S. She was a baby in the canoe during the Battle of Sugar Point on Leech Lake. My great-grandma, great-great-grandma, K Bay Way, was bringing supplies to my great great grandpa Makwa and other men during the battle. My parents met at the University of Minnesota Morris and the Morris campus is a former American Indian boarding school. So American Indian students can attend for free. It was part of the the, uh, stipulation when it was given to the state of Minnesota. And it was the only way my mom could afford to go to college. She was one of two American Indian students attending college there in 1964. My dad was the youngest of eight in a farm family and the only one allowed to finish high school, let alone go to college. Currently, my daughter attends the U of M Morris there and 26% of the students are Native American. My parents only went to the university for the one year and returned to college part time when my younger siblings were in grade school and the farm economy was really bad. They got their bachelor's degrees in 1985. We were expected to go to college and three of the four of us have master's degrees. Out of the cousins on my mom's side of the family, only one is a college graduate with an AA degree. I grew up on a farm, we had livestock and fields of corn and soybeans. We were the only natives in our very white small town. When I was in second grade, my mom got a phone call from the school because I had told the other kids in the class that I was Indian and you know, I shouldn't be telling them that. And mom said that I was, and brought her record of Powwow music to school and danced for the class. I've always felt a connection to the rivers and trees, and being a river engineer in public service just feels right. My bachelor's and master's degrees are in civil engineering, and I have a minor in American Indian studies. I have 25 years with EUSAES and two years at a private company. I've also spent two years, te- three years teaching junior high science to inner city students and science at Ojibwe. Uh, seasonal camps and active with American Indian science and engineering society and our local school district Indian education program.
0: Michelle, thanks for sharing that. Uh, that is a wonderful story. Uh, I think that really resonates with a lot of folks that are listening. If we could transition now
2: to Simone. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, Michelle, thank you so much for giving us some more background. It's nice to get to hear more of her story. Um, I grew up in New Orleans and, um. Currently live in New Hampshire on unceded territory of the Abenaki peoples. Um, my story is a little different from Michelle's, uh, you know, I was an urban Indian and I grew up, um. Loving Native American culture and being proud of my heritage. Um, My parents really appreciated Native American art. So I grew up around lots of beautiful things. Um, But the spiritual component of what it meant to be Indian was missing in my childhood until my father's sister married a Cheyenne medicine man. And so my uncle Michael is the one who brought the songs and prayers and the sweat lodge and traditions like that back into our family. Um, And so. When I was 15, I started flying out to uh, sweat and pray with he and my auntie um, for a week every summer. And uh, this was a ceremony called the Bear Dance. And so it was a a spiritual gathering where we would camp together for a week and sing and pray. And they were people who were fasting, so we were praying for them. And it was really a chance for me to learn about this other side of my heritage. And it definitely has helped sort of pave the path Um, to where I am today. I am currently working for USACE as a plant ecologist. So I, um, like Michelle, feel very connected to the land and have a deep respect that I was taught by elders going to Yosemite every summer, um, and feel very privileged to be able to combine both the Western traditional science education I received with my indigenous traditions that I've learned, Michelle and I had a conversation recently about this idea of being boundary spanners. So I feel like I straddle both worlds, right? I come at this with a deep connection to the land. And at the same time, have discussions with academics about how to best understand climate change, how to uh, use plants as tools for the military, for instance. and I feel a sense of responsibility to recognize the importance of my Indigenous knowledge and heritage in sitting at the table with uh, fellow researchers. One of my research interests um, is actually related to the cold region. Since I work at the Cold Regions Research Lab, I've worked with Indigenous peoples in the Arctic, specifically the Inuit, to document plant knowledge. And um, that's work that I aim to continue today and really wanted to take advantage of my opportunity to have a large audience within the MVD to say that I'm very interested in collaborating um, with tribes. I would love to start incorporating that more into my work. I've been at um, USACE for four years now and my work has all been on the military side and I'd love to move into civil works and work with tribes um, specifically because it gives me the opportunity to Use my skills I've gained and also advocate for the traditional ecological knowledge that I feel is critical to solving big world problems, climate change in particular. So, thanks again for this opportunity. Over.
0: Thank you, Dr. White Cloud. Um, equally uh, wonderful story. And I'll just say, on behalf of MB- MBD, we would love to support any research that, that you'd like to do in our region. The door is open. So, um, all you have to just let us know um, and uh, we'll make sure to hook you right up with the right people and get you uh, support whatever you need to do for your research. We'd be honored to, to do that.
3: All right. Mark, over to you. Yes, ma'am. Good morning. Um, I'll start by saying in my language, aho. Nicanor netic, inwa aquatic, inwa can. In my language, that's good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, It's very good to see all of you today. Um, I'm a member of the pigeon and sturgeon clans of the second fox. Uh, Our clan duties were the growth and protection and the distribution of uh, white ceremonial corn. Uh, It's very uh, traditional and we use it uh, through all of our ceremonies and meals. Uh, Our sister tribe uh, is the Meskwaki in your division in the middle of the state of Iowa, near Tama and Marshalltown, and I'm an enrolled member of the Sac and Fox of Missouri, which is a very small reservation there on the Kansas-Nebraska border. Uh, I'm a product of the boarding school system. My grandmother went to uh, two boarding schools in the 20s and 30s, and um, I've had a 35-year working career uh, to include 20 years with the Corps. Um, 13 with the Department of Energy and uh, several as an environmental scientist in private consulting, engineering firms, uh, and with the state of Kansas. I've worked for my tribal government as a tribal gaming chairman uh, in the implementation of the Indian Gaming uh, Regulatory Act and our tribal gaming compact. I grew up at my reservation uh, in a very small town called Reserve Kansas. With a large population of about 80 people, uh, last year, I completed law school with uh, a degree in Indian law. Um, I've been a uh, dual uh Tribal liaison and regulatory project manager for about 14 years in the core. Um, and now I work uh, for. The tribal nations technical center of expertise as a senior and I've earned every gray I have, Senior Tribal Liaison, Uh, and it was created to support districts, divisions, centers, agencies, including tribes, and our USA's Tribal Liaisons in the implementation of trust responsibility within our various mission areas, which we'll get into. And uh, lastly, I'm the Army's Tribal Liaison to Tribes and Families in the return of Native students from the... Carlisle industrial school uh, for about the last 6 years is still ongoing. Uh, That's uh, located at the uh, Carlisle post barracks and the cemetery there in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Uh, It's out, it's actually an active uh, barracks and the army's war college campus. Over
0: all right, thank you, Mark. We appreciate your service and all you do to to support me particularly on on all of uh, these efforts. I will note to the audience that uh, recommend you follow if you're on LinkedIn that you follow Mark. Uh, he's active in sharing different articles and updates on, on um, just things that are happening in this in that space and uh, I've found them to be very informative and, and learned a lot. So thanks again to all three of you for introducing yourselves. So now we'll move on to some questions uh, on the Native American experience, especially as it pertains to the workplace. So, uh, before before we get into that, though, I do want I do have one question on my mind that I want to clear up at this right now, and that's the correct term or title to use. Um, I hear Native American, I hear American Indian. Uh, it seems that both are acceptable. Uh, Mark, uh, we'll go to you for this one. What would you What would be your feedback and advice on that?
3: Well, as most Indian attorneys would tell you, uh, it varies, right? Uh, In my experience, um, it's a generational and a legal term, and it varies by generation and situation. Um, In a legal setting, uh, American Indian is uh, embedded in the Constitution and legislation, but it has fluctuated over time uh, from laws in the 30s where Indian was the term. Uh, through the 70s, and then it changed in administrations to more native American. Um, And and you have to go back and look at some legislation that addressed Indians uh, was named for the senator. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, you know, things vary uh, over time. But in a general sense, uh, the terms uh, can be interchangeable. Indian American Indian native native American indigenous. Uh, but within the tribe, uh, when you talk about matters of custom and tradition, um, they start to, to become personable. And so they become Santee. They become Sok. They become Yanktoni. They become Kickapoo. They become Meskwaki. They become Ho-Chunk or Bakoje. When they become ours, they're possessive. So it it, it depends. <clears throat> I would note that Indian the term "Indian is problematic. Its use has been seen as pejorative, hints strongly of uh, colonialism. It's an obvious geographical inaccuracy to start with, right when we think about it. Um, and it generalizes and ignores cultural diversity and uniqueness. Um, each tribe is different. Uh, each tribe is has a different history with USACE, with the government, with the army, uh, but I would say it's always appropriate to ask. It's how, how would you like to be uh, defined or termed, uh, or how would you like us to use the word? Um, some tribes will actually tell you, right? It's, it's not much different than how we might think about uh, the terms commander or district engineer or ma'am or, or miss Holland. So that's one of the best answers that I can come up with at the moment, ma'am. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mark. I think, and that's great advice on anything having to do with people is just ask them how they wanna be, what they wanna be called. Um, And I did ask, as we were preparing for this, I asked our panelists uh, how, you know, making sure that I was using the right term. So um, I'm confident that the use of Native American, that I will be using Native American throughout, And I understand that to be appropriate. Okay. So now if, if each of you would share something um, about what you'd like your non Native American coworkers to understand about Native Americans and again, Michelle, we're going to start with you.
1: Um, I think the biggest issue is that, uh, recognizing that we are still here. Um there, we're not just on reservations either. We are in all, all places across the country. There's 576 federally recognized tribes, plus hundreds more that are working on getting that federal recognition, uh, just because the federal government has recognized that your tribe doesn't make you a tribe. You know, um, the tribes existed before the federal government did, they didn't need (laughs) their, their recognition to exist. Um, and that you shouldn't just expect any native person to know the culture of any other tribal nation. I mean, there's with that many different tribes, it's it's just insane to think that we know everything about every other tribal culture. It's it's very different. Um, and just that you should just take some time to learn about the history of the interactions of at least the area where you're at. Um There's a lot of cultural genocide that's been experienced by tribes and that, you know, there's been many, there's been many, there's been multiple federal government policies that's been aimed at the genocide of Native Americans. And um, a lot of these policies have broken down um, those cultural ties, those traditions, those ways of life and um, so there's a lot of generational issues and trauma and um, a lot of the socioeconomic factors are a result of that and not necessarily that um, not a reflection of what Native people are capable of, I guess.
0: Yeah, thanks, Michelle.
2: Simone, your thoughts? Um, I'll echo exactly what Michelle says. Like, first of all, we're still here. We're not some ancient culture relegated to museums. And then I really do um, feel like even this question sort of highlights a misconception that I can speak to the Native American experience. I can't. I can speak about mine. So um, I think Michelle put it really well. Over. Thanks, Simone. Mark?
3: Oh uh, Yes, ma'am. Um, I would note that tribal cultures are uniquely different first than the dominant culture within the US and all tribes are different all 576 are different we do have some similar similarities but their histories are all different including their wars their land removals their treaties the legislation of the US government their his- historical land claims and their overall interactions with the government not to mention their history with the Army, with the USACE. Think about the 20s and the 60s era war department and flood control dams on all of our big river systems. And I know they exist in your AOR as well. Uh, so those interactions and histories are all different compared to tribes of the Southwest and Alaska. Um, and I would note that tribes are evolving governments as well. They all have different trajectories regarding their own sovereignty, their own treaty rights, their own economic development, uh, their own gaming, their own infrastructure, their own water development, their own tribal needs, their own uh, COVID concerns, food sovereignty and climate change. Uh, I can certainly speak to the contrast in culture as the army liaison for Carlisle to return children, Uh, Between the army culture and the tribal culture, they're vastly different. There's polar opposites. I used to tell people, if you took an hourglass and turned it on its side, the liaison is that little thin piece in between two different cultures, and they can't be uh, different, but there are similarities, ma'am. Most tribal nations defended this nation uh, fiercely in wars, and they wear the uniform they respect your uniform, ma'am. So there are some connection points uh, in serving, uh, maybe disparately over other racial groups in the U.S. So they they do have a a very unique knowledge uh, of the uniform, ma'am. And I know they appreciate it, especially for our veterans, over.
0: Thanks, Mark. Yeah, so what I heard all three of you say was recognize the diversity of the, this population that we've kind of grouped into the under the term Native American, that there's a different history across all of the of the tribes and and bands and and all these different groups, um, and and then a the history with the army, the history with the the U.S. federal government is varied, um, uh, and there's a lot to overcome in our relationship uh, with our tribal partners, and I'll just reinforce. One of the great benefits of of uh, having gotten to know Mr. Pinkham and Mr. Connor already is we and we've asked them, you know, what would be your advice to us as we build these programs, the tribal uh, partnership program stronger? And both alluded to, you know, you have to have patience. Uh, you have to remember what their history is and what their perspective is. and it takes it, it takes time to overcome. And not that, you could, not that it will be overcome, but get, be empathetic and understand that it is not just as simple as getting together at the table and talking about the business of today. That there is a history that um, we have to recognize and, um, as we build that relationship. All right, uh, so uh, next question for each of you, uh, have you been able to maintain your tribal traditions, culture, language, and identity in general? while working for USACE? Do your words, actions, behaviors, et cetera, change uh, when you're at work? Michelle, again, we'll we'll start with you.
1: Uh, yes, I've been able to maintain um, my culture and stuff. Um, it takes time. It takes commitment to keep connections strong. I grew up away from the reservation. Um, and intentionally wasn't exposed to a lot of the ceremonies growing up to protect me because from discrimination because if I didn't know about that it couldn't be used against me. Um, My mom grew up when our religion was against the law and poverty, police brutality, That is why AIM, the American Indian Movement, was formed in 1968. And the American Indian Religious Freedom Act did not pass until 1978. And until then, a lot of our religion happened underground or in private. Um, As an adult, I have had to work at learning my tribal traditions and culture. I have spent years taking Ojibwe language classes and currently still taking Ojibwe language classes. Um, but the time spent on it is very important to me, um, and I feel like, you know, I have, feel like I have a connection to the natural world, to my ancestors. Um, I feel like my family is very supportive and it is something that helps clear my head and allows me to focus on what is important. I suppose it is kind of like meditating for people who do that. Um, I don't share a lot about my Ojibwe culture at work, just because I don't, I guess I don't think that most people will understand it or find interesting or important. At work over the years, I've, I've focused on just behaving in ways that are the expected norms, um, in the professional setting, just, um, Working on that eye contact, looking at people, um, and becoming more outspoken—that um, that's been something that I've had to really work on over the years. Over.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, Simone.
2: Um, so I will say that the requests that I've made um, to our campus facilities in terms of supporting my traditional beliefs have been supported. When I started my job, I requested permission to smudge off my office every day, which is a way of sort of spiritually cleaning the area and myself to get ready for the day. And they were very willing to do that. Um, A second thing was I requested funds training funds to go to the society of American Indian government employees training program that they have annually. And um, my director was really excited to send me there. They've also sent me to um, the society for the advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in the sciences conference to recruit. As one thing I'm sure everyone on the panel can relate to is I'm usually the only native in the room at, at a lot of these meetings. And the way I can change that is to try to bring more natives to the table. And so my director has been really supportive of me doing that as well,
3: over.
1: That's
2: good to hear, Simone.
0: Mark, over to you.
3: Um, Yes, to the first question about maintaining tribal traditions, but it hasn't always been easy, right? Uh, Regarding the second question, uh, I would say that uh, it's just a somewhat answer. Uh, My work world isn't quite as patient as my tribal world. Uh, In reality, these worlds are uh, very different. That's why I'm passionate about my role as a tribal liaison uh, in bringing those cultures together. Uh, at my work, my actions and behaviors can be quite different, uh, like uh, Michelle mentioned, uh, from my natural state of uh, existence and being. Uh, things go much slower in Indian country. Uh, um, ceremonies require a considerable time away from work, um, days and weeks. I have to coordinate with my own tribal government, uh, resource allocations and elders and and it takes a personal commitment to to uh, to extend that kind of effort away from work and family. Um, some ceremonies can't be shared outside of the tribal knowledge keepers. Uh, other activities are what we call pan-Indian, uh, like a powwow, per se, and they're celebratory, uh, and those cross many tribal cultures. Um, They're more open to the public and can share it outwardly. So that's kind of what you might see a little bit more of, but it's not a defining component of of Indian cultures. Um, And uniquely, uh, I've had the ability to work in a field office for 20 years while fulfilling the role as a tribal liaison. So that's much easier than it might be in a district office or in a much larger setting where I might be the only uh, native in in the room. But um, it's in my role, it's been easier to maintain my identity because I have to be that way outwardly in my role. So that's just a unique component of of, of my work role. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, Mark.
0: Simone, I'm going to come to you on this next one. Uh, do you feel and, and you mentioned hiring the importance of hiring. Uh, to broaden uh, the demographic of natives in in USACE, do you feel that there are barriers to USACE employment for Native
2: Americans? I certainly do. I think um you know there's been a long history of distrust between tribes and the federal government and its agencies, and so I think um it would be important for you to make more publicly known the efforts that are being made to change that um, I really didn't even know this is kind of embarrassing. But I mean, I've worked for USACE for 4 years and I didn't know until I was invited to be on this panel that we had a. Tribal nations technical center of expertise, so I, the more we can do to get the good news out there that you are open to change and change is happening and we have amazing liaisons that are making that a reality, the better. Um, I think also one of the limitations too is um, just accessibility. So a lot of people along like an academic track, for instance, don't realize that being a federal researcher is a potential career. You know, you kind of think like, oh, I'll work in industry or something. So I think um, having internships to engage young people would definitely be another solution towards bringing more um, students into, tear down those barriers. The last one is I'm hoping COVID will actually help change this. And it's the fact that so often jobs require a person to be physically there. And it's really challenging for someone to leave their community and their roots and their spiritual practices to go to a job that's far from home. And if we can really promote telework as a reality or remote work, um, I think that could really help to tear down some of those barriers as well.
0: Thanks, Simone. Uh, Yeah, you know, awareness is key. Uh, I'm struck by how much I didn't know before I embarked on on this preparing for this panel. Uh, What I know uh, is, you know, basically, it's what what Hollywood. Shows the general American public is probably what most people in America know about Native Americans unless you happen to be co-loc- or nearby or have some other connection. So um, I was woefully ignorant, I'm sure I still am, but at least I'm I'm making progress. Um, my next question goes back to terminology and definition, and Michelle, I'm going to ask this of you. What is the difference between Indian country and an Indian reservation?
1: Ma'am? Could I interject something on your end of your last question before I begin that one? Yes, please. Okay. So one of the things about um, the barriers to employment is one thing about once we get an employee, it was keeping them, the retention. And I just wanted to um, kind of promote that we have started a Native American employee network recently. And this is, um, Sorry, move my notes. It's a uh, way for Native American employees to get new friends who are also Native American, grow our professional network, share common experiences, discuss current events, topics related to Native Americans, provide and receive mentorship, and just spread cultural awareness across our agencies. So any Native Americans listening, please send me an email to join our group We would welcome your participation
0: and Michelle to just to reinforce that, uh, you know, it's a great initiative on your part and so proud that you've done that. And I just want to emphasize it. uh, And that this is for all across USACE. It's not just for MVD. This is USACE wide, right? Great. Okay, thank you. Yes.
1: Yeah. Okay. So you had asked about the difference between Indian country and Indian reservation. I don't know what the correct definition of Indian country is, but there's two ways I think of it. And the the first way I think of it to me is that the entire continent of North America is Indian country, because that's what it was before discovery. Um, the more common thought though is that Indian country is, it's the general connection of all the, all the native tribes across North America, right? It's that. Common, common fight for native rights for native pride for. In that common pride there, and then there's the, um, community spirit. But then what Indian reservations are those are. Land that has been reserved for native tribes. By the federal government through a treaty or some action by Congress or. Federal action, and so those are 2 very different things. Over.
0: Okay, Mark or Simone, any other thoughts on. On the differences between those 2. Okay, I do want to. you, there's a question in the chat from Carolyn Polk asking what the URL is for uh, the Native American Employee Network. And as I understand it, there's no website at this time, so that's coming in the future. Uh, to And Simone has typed in Michelle's email address. Uh, you can email her, at Michelle, at michelle.j.larsen at to get on the distro list. All right. Um Mark, back to you. I think you're probably the best person to answer this given your your um your history uh and that's in regards to federally recognized tribes um, Federally recognized tribes are sovereign uh what's the difference between federally recognized tribes and those that are not federally recognized
3: Yes, ma'am. I'll start with the bluff, right. <clears throat> Federally recognized Indian tribes have a legal and political relationship with the United States as sovereigns. As a matter of DOD policy uh, 4710.02, we only have legal obligations with federally recognized tribes. As a matter of policy, we cannot have a legal interaction, i.e. signed document or agreement with unrecognized tribes or state recognized tribes. Uh, I would note Native Hawaiian organizations have a different relationship with the United States, uh, but we have a legal obligation to protect tribal resources, uh, treaty rights, trust rights in Indian lands. So unpacking that is, uh, yes, we have. uh, Yes, uh, Alaska Alaska Natives and uh, federal recognized tribes are sovereigns. They can administer their governmental duties to their citizenship such as taxation, member roles, judicial courts, environmental laws, child welfare, law enforcement, health care, just to name a few. Um, But it's a two-way recognition, right, Um, between the federal government and tribal sovereigns. It's been established through the Constitution, the Supreme Court, other decisions, uh, executive orders, federal agency policies, and without going into a deep dive into – uh, Indian law, uh, three 1830s era Supreme Court decisions established that tribes uh, are sovereigns. But they've been placed in this unique situation uh, where the federal government exercises plenary authority over them. Um, the example is a guardian to a ward. Um, uh, to direct federal actions, such as the Major Crimes Act across Indian country, among many other federal laws that apply. In other words, there's an overarching federal sovereign status over tribes in some areas of the law. Uh, this is example by this protectionist uh, from states approach, because states were always intervening in tribal affairs with another sovereign. Um, but the bottom line is the government has the highest level of fiduciary responsibility that they can afford. I I don't even want to add, can afford. Um, they just plainly have the highest level of fiduciary responsibility tribes are not states. And, and I would note that non federally recognized tribes have not necessarily completed the lengthy process to become a, a recognized tribe. Uh, They may not have an established treaty history. They may not have uh, exhaustive interactions with tribal, with the federal government and and a history uh, of jurisdiction over their citizens. Uh, But every so often, a couple of years, a a non-federally recognized tribe is added to the BIA list of federally recognized tribes to 576. And that's another great place to start for the names of tribes as they wish to be called rather than maybe a tri- a name that existed in uh in, in eons past ma'am over
0: thanks mark and something you said reminded me uh i'm going to mention this book at the end as well but uh reading res life um by david troyer uh I real I learned from that 1 of the things I learned from that is it's not even just about the relationship between a tribe and the federal government. There's also states and, and because some of the lands cross state boundaries and states have a different opinion. From each other and with the federal government on how laws are going to be applied and, and what it means for land and access and rights and all of those things. So it It is immensely complicated. Um, so appreciate the the already complicated explanation on the federal side. Uh, my next question is gonna, I'm gonna ask uh, Michelle and, and Mark to talk about this one. Uh, what are some of the challenges faced by the Corps relative to projects constructed on tribal lands? And Michelle, if you can lead us off on that.
1: Sure. So the challenge with some of these core projects is that in some cases, they've originally been constructed without the tribe's consent, especially depending on the time period when they are constructed. For instance, the Mississippi River Headwaters Reservoirs at Leech Lake and Lake Lake Winnibugoshish were constructed um, on the Leech Lake Reservation. And um, the 4, so there's 6 Headwaters Reservoirs total, the 4 other reservoirs at Pukagama, Sandy cross and Gull Lakes, Those are all constructed on land ceded during the 1855 treaty that created the Leech Lake and Mille Lacs reservations. In 1880, Congress approved a plan for an experimental dam to be constructed at Lake Winnibagoshish as a way to regulate flows in Minneapolis for the flour mills, for hydropower, and to help supplement water supply for navigation on the Mississippi. And so they, um, I wanna make sure I get my dates right here. So they approved this experimental dam to construct at Lake Winnibagoshish. And then in in 1882, they authorized Leech Lake and Pokekima dams to be constructed. All three of these dams were completed by 1884. The tribe wasn't even consulted about the dams. They didn't provide consent, and they were told not to interfere with the construction of the dams. These dams flooded out acres and acres of land. They completely changed the way of life. And, you know, The tribal members relied on this, this for their way of life. Um, And the Leech Lake Band sued the federal government and they finally had a settlement of damages. In 1985. Okay, these dams finished construction in 1884. That's over 100 years later. So our own history has a huge impact on how these, how challenging it is for the court to have a projects that are work, are built on these. And so we, we talked, mentioned it a little earlier on about just the whole history of our working relationships. So there's so much time, a lot of effort has to be built into working those working relationships and building that trust level up there, you know, You know, because that's, that's, that's something that's really hard to come back from, you know, and to rebuild that trust and to. You know, listen, I mean, we have tribal consultation, but. um, In the past, there's been a lot of complaints from tribes that. Yeah, they say it's consultation, but they show up and. You know, they sit there and we talk and then they walk away and then we never hear from them again. And so that's that's part of what we have to do is we have to give them an actual seat at the table, make the tribes an actual partner in the process, and let them hear the decision-making and be part of the decision-making and, you know, yeah, not all the decisions are going to be in their favor, right? We get that, but to understand what the decisions are and how that process is made. And, yeah, that's that's what's so challenging about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Michelle.
3: Mark, your thoughts on that. Um, Yes, ma'am. We call that paternalism run amok in our history, right? Uh, And, and interestingly enough, we have to be very careful of today's approach to tribes, right? We use this acronym uh, in my role as a tribal liaison as the dad principle. And sadly, that's often the core of the Army's uh, behavior outwardly, right? The dad decide, announce, defend. And often that that's in our history, that even comes out today that this is, we've decided what we're gonna do, we're gonna announce it, and then we're gonna defend it. But that's not how you interact and consult with tribes effectively. Uh, just a few facts. Um, We have projects constructed and operated by the core that encompass approximately 30% of all core civil works actions that interact and impact tribes. Uh, And those directly often impact directly treaty and trust resources of about 20% of the tribes in the lower 48s. Uh, So there's that component. Then there's projects constructed by the core and operated and maintained by non-federal sponsors especially those under the rivers and harbors, lakes, lakes, dams, rivers, locks, levees, et cetera. Uh, And and that's an immense amount of of footprint on Indian lands. Uh, Our support for others, which is now called IIS, our military projects, FUDs, installations, housings, uh, those all tend to be actions by the Corps, maybe for others, uh, military. Uh, Rivers and harbors again, Uh, and I will unpack regulatory is probably 1 of the bigger uh, actions uh, within a mission area of a district or a division. Uh, Don't forget that regulatory clean water act 404 and 408 actions are again. An innumerable amount of interactions uh, on the landscape impacting tribes, resources and treaty rights. but those are generally on non Indian lands, but when you think about Indian lands. Uh, and use actions, that's another component of activities that you have to really unpack and be aware of. Uh, those you want to go slow on, right? You have to really evaluate and recognize and strategize your approach. Um, and those are all constitutional strategy. Uh, consultation strategies that you want to really go slow on ma'am over.
0: Yeah, thank you, Mark. Um, I'm going to. I do want to mark. We do have a question in the chat that I think goes back to your explanation of the federal government and and the tribe and tribal relations. The question from Richard Dudley is: So the federal government works hand in hand with tribal government in certain legal situations? Question uh, mark.
3: Well, that's a very good question. I'm glad he brought it up. Um, You know, most of our actions have been reactionary. Uh, We have an action issue, uh, whether it's a regulatory or civil works action, and we're bringing up projects impacts in consultation with the tribe. And uh, that's how we've operated for many, many, many years. I would note that true engagement involves a different term called collaboration. And, And that is where we can take our authorities and our programs to tribal nations to say, listen, uh, we have capacity to work for Indian country in this arena, whether it's water resources, flood control, you could just name all of our authorities, We're, they're immense. So we can collaborate with tribes and work for them and work with them in a different way uh, than we ever have in the past where it was very reactionary bringing an action severely impacted. I'll use the Missouri River as a great example. Uh, Indian nations up and down from stem to stern. So those are kind of two different footholds within our authority and our programs to to strike a different time and a different conversation for our uh, capacity to work for tribes rather than uh, our reactionary. But we still have those. So it's a it's an interesting stair step of events where we still have reactionary issues, but we can collaborate, coordinate, and communicate more effectively in areas.
0: Okay, thank you. All right, um Simone, I'm going to ask you the next question. Uh, are there other ways that you say can assist Native American communities? What are your thoughts
2: on that? um so I want to circle back to something that Michelle said, which is is to, to listen, right? And to understand that there is a long history of trauma and that intergenerational trauma is real. Um, and then kind of building on what Mark was just saying is we need to build trust, right? That we need to understand that building trust is not a one-year thing, it's not a five-year thing. It's a, we keep showing up again and again, year after year And we recognize that there are challenges in having these conversations and there is hurt and distrust, but we want to change that. Um, And then I'll circle back to what I said too, about taking advantage of giving youth experiences with learning more about the core, Um, having internships. There are two conferences. One is ACES, so that's the American Indian Science and Engineer Society that I think um, Michelle has mentioned. So that's a great conference if you can send folks there to recruit. Um, and then also SACNAS, which is the one I mentioned, the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in the Sciences, is a great way to support the communities and um, be recruiting the next generation of scientists and leaders and engineers in their communities. Over. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah,
0: listen, build trust, build awareness. Uh, those are definitely themes that we can all we can all work on. Uh, I'm going to transition to the topic of boarding schools, and I'm not sure that our audience knows what that is in its entirety. We've mentioned it a couple of times. Um, and Michelle and Simone, I'm going to go to you for this question. Um, first of all, can you explain what what they are what they were. Uh, and how your families were impacted by them. You know, Michelle, we'll start with you again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. Boarding, the schools were located throughout the U.S. and Canada, and they were an attempt to assimilate Indian trail into the white, you know, American way of life. It was, um, and so the most famous one was the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. Um, Henry Pratt was the one who famously ran that, and his motto was to kill the Indian and save the man. they they varied a lot at the beginning of the boarding school era. There was. A point in time where a lot of children were just forcibly removed from their parent their families. Um, and shipped off, and there was it re- really varied on where you were, but there were really little children were even just taken. And they were just, they were taught that how to be white anything Indian was evil. You know, they, it was just really, really horrible. Um, And some of them, they, they, it was just awful. Horrible things happened there. They um, abused, not enough food, not even, you know, just, just horrible things. And then there's, there's others that weren't so bad. Um, So that's, that's the, that's the thing is that, there's been a huge push across the country to figure out what happened, because a lot of children never returned home. Um, and so that's that's what's what's 1 of the big things in the media right now. If you have heard about it in the media, that's 1 of the big things that's been going on is the secretary of the chair, Deb Haaland had called for an investigation last year into the board schools. And um there's supposed to be in a report due by April 1st. But as of some point last fall, they, of all the searching of the school grounds they had done to the U.S. and Canada, they had found over 7,000 bodies of children, 7,000 bodies of Native American children that had been buried at these schools. And those are just the ones that, the schools they had searched. That's not the schools, that's not ones that weren't searched or the kids that ran away and died out in the woods or or wherever. Um, but they were not all evil, they were not all awful. As far as my family, um, they were not part of the early years of the forced attendance at boarding schools. During those early years, my family just, my my family, my ancestors just just went to the day schools on the reservations. Um, And so, as far as boarding schools, my great grandfather Levi Wind attended the Pipestone Indian training school in Pipestone, Minnesota. That was around 1910. And um, at that point in time, they were only taking children who were orphans. So he went because he was an orphan and both of his parents were dead. And I don't know a lot more about that school, but I haven't heard any horror stories. So I can't imagine that it was one of these really awful experiences. And then his daughter, my grandmother, Teresa, she attended the Flandreau Indian School in Flandreau, South Dakota, which is about 15 miles west of there, Pipestone 1, in 11th grade. And that was in 1933. And when she attended, you had to apply to go there. And she really wanted to go there. Um, And there was about 400 high school students there when she went, and she loved it. It was a really good experience for her. And so, I mean, like I said, there's a huge, Huge difference. It varied a lot um, across the board, but in general, I'm not, I mean, with all the horror stories you've heard, I, I can't imagine sending my kids there, but, you know, um, with my grandma, she, it was a really good experience for her. I mean, it was a place where she could go to high school and get a decent, I mean, at the time in 1933, that was a good education. She could get there and she went to a high school with 400 other Native American students, and that had been quite an experience. She wasn't able to go back for 12th grade because she got tuberculosis over the summer, but I'm pretty sure that that was part of the reason she was able to get her nursing certificate. Over.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Michelle. Simone?
2: Um, so my great grandfather actually went to the Carlisle Indian School. Uh, he was there from 1909 to 1910 and one of my family's biggest claims to fame is he played football with Jim Thorpe there. Um, so one of was the greatest athlete of all time. Um, and I want to echo what Michelle was saying in terms of the mix of good and bad in these schools. Some of them were horrible, but some of them offered, offered benefits as well. And so in the case of my great grandfather, he actually went on to um, go to Yale Law, and you know that benefit then paid off because my great, sorry, my grandfather, my father, my brother, all three went to medical school. You know they saw the value of education. They weren't intimidated by this sort of Western structure of one way of being. Um, and then I now have my my PhD, my doctorate. So in those ways we've benefited, but I think at the same time we've also really struggled. Um, you know, if you think about my great-grandfather being at a place where literally with Henry Pratt was being told that the savage within him needed to be killed, um, that trauma has been carried forward, which I mentioned before, this intergenerational trauma. So my grandfather, my father, my brother, and myself have all struggled with depression and feelings of inadequacy and not recognizing our own um gifts that we've been given and the strengths that we have. And so I think it's important to recognize that that gets carried on. And um, fortunately for me, I've got a really great therapist and I've been working through all of that and I'm doing my best to make sure that my daughter won't have those same beliefs, you know, carried forward and on into the next generations. Over.
0: Wow, thank you, Simone, both of you uh, very powerful stories and r- appreciate you sharing sharing them with us. Um, I see that we've reached the top of the hour, so we'll have to wrap up the rest uh, fairly quickly, but I don't wanna leave this episode without asking each of you um, what educational resources, books, films, videos, would you recommend to your non-Native American coworkers to increase their awareness and understanding of your culture? Michelle, we'll, we'll start with you.
1: Yeah, so I put a couple books in the chat. Um, one of my favorite books to um, recommend was Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians, What Were Afraid to Ask. By Anton Troyer, um, Troyer spelled TREUER. Um, Anton and David Troyer, which uh, General Holland mentioned, are actually brothers. They're from Beach Lake Reservation, but um, the book is good because it's like all these FAQs that you know people are too embarrassed to ask in person. so it's, uh, it's pretty good in that respect. Um, And then a book about Native leadership, uh, a book about Mankiller, Chief and Her People by Wilma Mankiller. She was the first principal chief uh, of the Cherokee Nation. I read that as part of my leadership program. And um, but in general, I would say get to know what's happening in your area. There are tribes all over the country. do some research, go to your local library. Almost every tribe has a website, you know, ask your friend Google what tribes are in your area. Go check out their websites. They generally have their a little about us thing there. You can look up their their history or something, you know, see what they're, they put up there. Go to, I mean, yeah, powwows are, are you know, more of a modern thing, but it's it's a very positive experience. You know, a powwow is a blending of a lot of Native cultures together, but there's no drugs or alcohols at powwows. It's a very positive experience. Um, and, you know, just be respectful.
0: Um, yeah. Thanks.
2: Simone, your thoughts? Um, so, there's one really great reference, Vision Maker Media at visionmakermedia.org um, is an all-native um, film consortium. There are free films to see. They have a lot of programs that are aired on PBS. Um, so, really great spot to learn new stuff. Um, there's also one of my favorite authors is Louise Erdrich. So, she writes fiction, um, but it's it's all about life on the reservation. Um, And then lastly, the National Museum of the American Indian in DC is a tremendous resource. I think Michelle referenced her great grandmother and grandmother having beadwork there. Um, So, they have a really nice uh, website given COVID. So, there's plenty you can see even without actually going to DC. Over. Thank you.
3: Mark. Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, I think uh, in the in the uh, onset we uh, or soon will provide a link to the history of federal Indian law. That's one of the best one-hour videos that I can uh, recommend to really get a better. Uh, there it is. Uh, to uh, get a better understanding of interactions in tribal history, which we've all been talking from, uh, my own personal journey. Read anything, Vine Deloria Jr. Uh, incredible uh, author for a scientist and an engineer in my growth. Uh, and then lastly, ma'am, I would just underscore and appreciate the fact that you helped present as a leader uh, this awareness, uh, bringing us together. Thank you. and And don't forget that tribal needs are great in their communities. So let's explore how we can do better for their needs. Uh, very deserving communities, and it's it's a relationship you will always remember and cherish is one of the most important uh, links and relationships you'll ever establish. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Mark. Thanks to all three of you for those resources. Um, I know I wrote some of those down, so I'll be checking some of those books out of library or, and going to Vision Maker and, and seeing what's there. I think it's a fascinating topic and our obligation to to get more educated on this and more aware. I mentioned uh, the book Res Life by David Troyer, a uh, great book, first-hand story about his life on, on a reservation, the good, the bad, the hope, the despair, uh, all of it was in there. So um, I thought it was a really worthwhile read. Okay, so to wrap up, I just want to summarize what we've heard today because it's with this, this is there's a lot of material and a lot has been covered a lot of different topics. Uh, we have gone beyond our normal hour for this. For this forum, but I think it was absolutely necessary and, and worthwhile. Uh, and it, and we will in the very near future. Make this a podcast so anybody can go back and listen to it for those that had to sign off early uh, those that weren't able to join us will be able to um to listen to the discussion and then when and when the podcast is is published the link to the your video mark will be included in the show description so to summarize and i hope i can do a good job summarizing because there was a lot there uh, first takeaway uh, native american culture and history is very rich and important to the history of the us uh, and of course it goes without saying that native americans have made our country better, and I and what I'll reference one of the things I'll reference is Mark's comment about veterans. Uh, I had did come across some of that information as well as the very strong um, volunteerism towards serving in the military and wearing the uniform in our nation's wars, and probably not recognized enough. Uh, so. Uh, as a as a fellow um, veteran, I appreciate that um, number 2, the, the culture and history is diverse. No 2 tribes or branches or reservations are alike. Uh, it's important to appreciate the diversity within the native population. The journey for Native Americans has been uh, there's far too many examples of tragedy and betrayal. Um, you know, we only touched on it briefly. Uh, There's a lot of history out there. Uh, for, for the audience to learn about and understand this perspective, I think it is important for us all to understand that. Um, And if, as we, if we're going to move forward. Uh, Definitely a takeaway is we need to listen and build trust and again, awareness, build awareness. uh, Those 3 things listening to our panelists. I would have to agree with David Troyer and my reading of Res Life that Native American history and culture didn't end with the Indian Wars, uh, that the traditions continue, their hopes and dreams persevere, and that it's a testament to the heroism and resiliency of our Native American communities across America. Um, And I do also like, just given the timing of at least in MBD, but also in USACE at large, and a massive hiring outreach that we have. You know, we've either already started, um, and will be continuing to grow. Uh, we want, we need, we need more people in USACE to deliver this historic program, uh, and and it is an opportunity to build the diversity of USACE as well among many different uh, demographics. But Simone, you answered my question about. You kind of got after this as to making sure we have representatives at the right conferences that we can build awareness and perhaps bring on uh, some of those attendees onto our team. So at this time on the screen, uh, a slide that's being shared uh, highlights identifies all of the tribal liaisons in MVD. You can see them there. Uh, there's some other questions in the chat. I would I recommend going to your tribal liaison. And or any of the, any of these panelists, I know they'd be more than happy to answer your questions through email or phone contact them to get after any of the questions that we weren't able to answer. So, I really want to thank the 3 of you for participating in today's program. Uh, It has been interesting, rewarding, very educational for me. And I know for many people on here, Uh, I'll just say you're tremendous role models. In all aspects. Uh, Of what you do, how you serve, um, how you've reconnected with your culture, how you um, have expressed it in the most honest way on this. I, I really do appreciate it. And I know I speak for. Our whole team that we are proud to know you and proud to have had you join us today. I also want to thank our audience for tuning in. We will continue to do these forums once a quarter. If you have a subject of interest, you'd like to recommend, please let us know so that we can consider your suggestion for future in the Valley forums. Finally, thank you, MVD, the, the entire region. For all that you do in support of the people and resources of the Mississippi Valley, you continue to make a difference until next time be safe and stay healthy. That's all from Vicksburg have a great week. Everybody. Thank you. Thank you.